I would invite you to turn in your copy of the scriptures to the book of Acts. Nearing the end of the book of Acts, we're going to be looking this morning at Acts 26. Acts 26. If you're using one of the black Bibles that are provided there in the seats, you'll find today's text on page 592. 592, Acts 26. We're going to be considering pretty much the whole chapter and even a few uh, little verses from um, chapter 25 to get us some context as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. Let's just pause for a moment and ask for God's help as we consider His Word. Lord, we are humbled before Your Word this morning. We ask for Your help, for Your strength, for Your wisdom. Most of all, we ask the Spirit to take the words uh, that are before us, that are inspired, and apply them to our hearts, that we might learn truth, that we might be changed by it, that we might be conformed to the image of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. We ask these in His holy and precious name. Amen. What is the meaning of your life? What gives you significance? What do you want to be able to point to as your accomplishment, as your identity? These are probing, meaningful questions as you evaluate life. For many people, it's, it's prestige. They want to be known for their accomplishments, for their wealth, be famous for being a highly regarded person. I recently was listening to a podcast. The gentleman was explaining... Uh, an, an event that he uh, experienced that he had had. He was watching a few young men who were who were gathered around a Ferrari in a parking lot, and they had their their photo shoot set up. They had the uh, the cameras and their their lighting and everything, and they were shooting still pictures and and videos. And he watched uh, amused as as they had this kind of ostentatious flaunting of, of their status as they gathered around their Ferrari with, you know, with bills of money fanned out and just, you know, getting all these, these pictures in the video. And, and these young men were bragging about their car and, and, and telling the would-be viewer of this video how they too can have this kind of wealth and status and power if they will, if they will get on board with their training program. That is, all of this was taking place until someone came screaming and yelling and cussing out of the nearby building, telling these guys to get away from his car, at which point they quickly packed up and hightailed it out of there. Um, as someone who is involved in the real estate investing space, I see this kind of thing and I get so amused by it. Right. They're, they're, they're selling a program, or a coaching program, or a series of videos, and, and a lot of people think there's this get-rich scheme, and what they're selling is really a lifestyle. They're selling, they're selling the longing for more. They're selling covetousness. And if you buy my training program, right, spend you know $20,000, $30,000 on my training program, you too can be successful and wealthy and have everything that you want. You know, there's actually a place in Malibu that you can, you can rent a jet, not to go anywhere, not to take any trips, but just as a photo shoot opportunity. So you can get on this jet, you can take all your pictures, you can post it on Instagram, 
and brag about, you know, um, you know, hashtag headed for Vegas, you know, uh, hashtag blessed, hashtag I'm so awesome you should buy my coaching program. <laughs> right? It's all about this facade of appearing grand and great and important and significant. What is their significance of life? It's all a facade. I was actually reminded of that when I was considering chapter 25 of Acts, just a few verses before uh, the passage we'll consider this morning in verse 23. Um, so the next day, Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At Festus's command, Paul was brought in. So this word that's translated here in verse 23, great pomp, is actually a Greek word from which we borrow an English word. And it's interesting that in this passage this morning, there's several of these, like we use that Greek word in English. This one is the word fantasia from which we get our word fantasy. There's this, this great appearance, this ostentatious, elaborate, put on uh, display that was entirely orchestrated to demonstrate their significance and Paul's relative insignificance. But Paul has a very different perspective because he understands, as we should understand, that the believer's life is about glorifying God. And what, is the, what does the Westminster Catechism say? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 1.21. We read it for our call to worship. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So that summarizes the totality of, of Paul's life, and actually the, the, the chapters before us and, and ahead of us here in the book of Acts illustrate that summary of Paul's life. And so as we come to chapter 26, we see in verse 1 and 2, um, the same use of the word twice. It says, Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. The word that is used in verse 1 and then again in verse 2, I, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself. This word answer is actually another word that we use in English, apologia. It's, it's apologetic. Paul is giving the apologetic of his life. He's given the defense, the explanation of his life, and not, not just his life, but, but the very truth to which he had committed himself as a preacher of the gospel. And so here we see a man nearing the end of his ministry, giving an explanation, giving a defense of his commitment to Christ. And so what we observe in this passage this morning is very simply this. Christ is worthy of our full life's commitment. Christ is worthy of our full life's commitment. So you might remember from previous passages, again, just kind of frame the context, um, that, that, that Paul had stood before Felix and then Festus, at which time he appealed to Caesar, which would be kind of like the, the Supreme Court of the land. But there's an intermediate court here Agrippa, who comes into play and says he, he wants to hear Paul himself. And so it's kind of like he's working his way up, you know, from the, from the local court to the circuit court to the, 
to the regional court. Now he appeals, of course, to the, the national, the, the highest authority in the land. So he stands now in our passage before King Agrippa. This is King Agrippa II. He is the last of the Herodian dynasty. His great-grandfather, King Herod, you might remember, was the one who ordered all of the male children below a certain age to be slaughtered in an attempt to destroy Jesus. Agrippa I had executed James and had imprisoned Peter before he was struck down by God in Acts 12. And so in chapter 25, verse 23, we meet, we meet Agrippa and Bernice. Bernice is Agrippa's sister and mistress. Now, Rome considered Agrippa to be an expert on the Jewish religion. Uh, as an overseer of the temple, Agrippa had authority to appoint the high priest, and he oversaw the temple treasury. A powerful man, an ostentatious man, who flaunted his authority, but a wicked man. As we observe Paul's apologetic, his explanation of his life, we see again that Christ is worthy of our life's full commitment. How do we see that? Well, in, in this passage, we understand Christ um, has enabled our work for him. This is how Paul describes it. This is how Paul frames his conversion, that commitment to Christ is, is enabled first and foremost by God's gracious intervention. So in the beginning of verse 4, he gives the account, and of course we're familiar with it from the book of Acts. He gives the account in verse, verses 4 and 5 that, that this is the upbringing he had in the Jewish law, in, in being an expert on the law, but, but Christ intervened. He tells about how he was going to persecute Christians in Damascus, and in route to Damascus, God stops him. Verse 14, when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. This is an interesting and colorful picture. Right, that would have been very familiar to those from an agrarian society. The picture would have been the, the ox or, or another beast of burden that was pulling the plow and how they would be kept in line, they would be uh, pushed along, they would literally be prodded along and sometimes the beast didn't like that, didn't want to be pushed, didn't want to be prodded. And so, you know, like my dog, when you poke her, and uh, she, doesn't, she wants to be left alone, and she growls at you, right? As the, the ox would do that. He'd kick back. He didn't like it. And this is how it is described. It's interesting that this is actually a quote from the Greek poet Euclid from one of his works. It, it's perhaps not what you would expect for Christ to show up and in glory to convert an apostle, borrow a line from the Greek poet. Uh, just an interesting 
uh, acquiescence to the importance of human culture that, that Christ uses this line as an illustration of what Paul is doing as he, as he tries to suppress the conviction, the, the conscience prick that he was feeling over persecuting Christians. But here's the interesting thing that you notice through this whole passage here. As Paul gives his testimony, as he gives his an account, Paul never makes himself the hero of the story. When he speaks about his conversion, he is speaking about the intervening work that Christ has done on his behalf. He is describing how Christ reached down in his mercy and saved him even as he was fighting against the conviction of Christ. Paul is not the hero of his own conversion. It's all about God. I wonder, do we sometimes fall in the trap of thinking of our work on Christ's behalf, thinking even of our conversion as something that we orchestrated? We have to frequently remind ourselves, as Paul seems to be aware, that it is all because of the mercy and grace of God that anything that we do can be accomplished. And so as we commit ourselves to Christ, as we are called on the script by the Scriptures to commit ourselves to Christ, we must remember the genesis of it, the, the very root of it is, is Christ's gracious intervention on our behalf. None of the ministry of Paul would have been possible had, not, had God not hunted him down and rescued him from his own sinful, rebellious ways. And that's true of all of us. Oh, we ought to be grateful that Christ in His mercy saved us, snatched us up from the pit, and any productive, fruitful service that we do in his, for His kingdom is because of His work, His gracious intervention. And so Christians stay humbled by that reality. Be reminded of that reality, that, that your spiritual accomplishments are not a credit to you. But there's an encouragement in that too, is there not? Because we don't always accomplish what we want to accomplish spiritually. We may have great goals. We may want to change the world. We may want to do wonderful things. But, but at the end of the day, all we are is simple servants to God's purposes. And so don't be discouraged if you don't accomplish what you want. Because everything is because of God's work through us. And our call is to merely be faithful. Perhaps you're listening this morning and you are not yet a believer. I wonder, are you tempted to think that it is your own goodness, your own works, your own religious deeds that will earn you favor with God? May I just tell you or, or remind you perhaps that our salvation, our being made in right relationship with God is not because of what we do. We are separated from God by, by sin, by our own rebellion. And it is only because Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came from heaven to earth, lived the life that we could not have lived, and died on our behalf. It is only because of that person and work that we can have forgiveness of sin. And my friend, God offers to you forgiveness if you will come to Him in faith and repentance. Faith, that is, that idea of belief, depending on Him alone for salvation. Not depending on ourselves, on our religion, our goodness, our works but on Jesus Christ alone. And repentance, which is closely wedded with it, that is turning from my way, my self-dependence, my goodness, 
even my erring. And if you will come to him in faith and repentance, he will, he will save you. He will do a work of new birth in you and make you a child of God and give you forgiveness of sin. We can't take credit for it. We must constantly be, be reined in by this reality that, that our commitment to Christ is necessary, it is important, it is what we are called upon to do, yet at the same time it is all because of God's gracious work on our behalf. We also observe in this passage that there is a reality that commitment to Christ requires things of us. And above all, it requires faithful proclamation of truth. So our chief end, our, our primary goal is, is the glory of Christ, but woven closely with that, the outgrowth of that is that we are to proclaim God's truth. We're called upon to do this just like Paul was, and this is exactly what he says in verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles. I obeyed, Paul says. As we are called to Christ, as we are committed to Christ, it is a life of obedience. And, and our expression of God's truth is because He has said to. I was just reading this week um, from the book of Jeremiah where the prophet is is captured and he's imprisoned and then he is put on notice to no longer preach the truth. And he says, I can't help it. Like it's a fire in my bones, he says. It's going to come out. This is what I have to do. This is what I'm called to do. There's no escaping it. There's no getting away from it. I was reminded of this passage as I had been thinking about it that that's the same attitude that Paul has. I have to preach the truth. It's obedience. Now, as he articulates truth, then, then how does he go about that? Because it is obedience to God, it is not really his message. It's not his to, to tinker with, to play with, to compromise. But in fact, because we are proclaiming God's truth in obedience to him, we must do so with an accurate presentation of God's truth. An accurate understanding of conversion is key. So we, we left off in the last part of verse 19 that they should repent and turn to God. Excuse me, last part of verse 20, rather. So they should repent and turn to God and do the works befitting a repentance. We were talking about this in our life group this week, this understanding of what repentance is. Saving faith Depending on, depending on Christ alone, is inseparable from repentance. Saving faith is, requires repentance, and repentance requires saving faith. They, they go together. If I'm continuing to shake my fist, if I'm continuing to rebel against God, I have not acknowledged, I have not believed what He has said is true about me. And so, coming to Christ, is, it is a submission it is a recognition of our sinfulness. It does not mean that we will be perfect. It does not mean that we will henceforth and evermore be, be sinless. It means that we see our sin God's way. Paul is accurate. He is careful in his message of the gospel. And he continues to do so even though it is not a popular message. Notice verse 21. For these reasons... 
the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand. Paul's reminding the king before whom he stands that his message is not popular. It was certainly not popular amongst the Jews, and that is the cause of all his problems right now, that he was faithfully preaching an unpopular message. Now, how could he be so sure that his message was, was right, that it was accurate, that it was true? It, he appeals then to the authority of the word in the last part of verse 22, witnessing both to small and great, saying that no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. He, so now he appeals to the entire Old Testament canon, which looked forward to this one Christ this one now who the Jews had said they were looking for, but now the authorities amongst the Jews were rejecting. So his appeal in giving the proper message and faithful proclamation, his appeal is to Scripture. This one who would come, who would sacrifice himself for his people, but would not stay dead. So central to his message is verse 23, the resurrection, that Christ would suffer that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So Paul makes the resurrection the hinge pin of his message, which, which was in fact the most controversial part of his message in certain quarters. This notion that one would, would die for others and then be raised again flew in the face of logic of what seemed reasonable, but the message of the resurrection is central. For without a resurrected Savior, there is no Savior. And so Paul is faithful as he preaches the message, even as he stands before the one who can destroy him, preaches the message of the gospel. For all of us, individually and as a church, it is imperative that we understand that our ministry must constantly appeal to the truth of the Word. The Word is the authority. That is what we appeal to. We've referred to it many times before as we talk about our philosophy of preaching. Uh, we could read a verse and, and talk about our ideas about that verse for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes on a Sunday morning, but that, that's not where the value is. The value is in the text. The value is in what God has said. And so as we uh, unpack, as we explain, as we apply what God himself has said, we present a message that God has called us to. And so as we are faithful, just like Paul is faithful, whether that's in your individual witness to your coworker, to your neighbor, to reveal the truth of, of the gospel to them, whether it's a church ministry that, that is trying to tie everything into the authority of the Word of God, it is imperative that we understand this commitment to Christ requires faithful proclamation of the truth. But lastly, we see that a commitment to Christ will be seen as absurd by some. And this is where we get to what is the title of, your mess, uh, of the message this morning, Living Like You're Crazy. So in verse 24, Festus interrupts the conversation between Paul and Agrippa. Festus is sitting by listening to all of this. Paul is explaining to Agrippa 
appealing to the prophets, which Agrippa would have been familiar with, and Festus interrupts in verse 24. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, so he, he yells in the middle of Paul's, I mean, this is the dream of every preacher, that someone at some point during the middle of his message will stand up and say, preacher, you're crazy. And then everybody around nods, right? <laughs> this is what's happening to Paul. Festus says, Paul, you are beside yourself. If you're using an English Standard Version, it's translated, you are out of your mind. Much learning is driving you mad. Again, if you're using the English Standard Version, it's driving you out of your mind. These are kind of idiomatic expressions that are used here uh, in translating because, because the word that underlies it is, is the word mania. Right? It's the, it's, we use that in English. Uh, we also see that same root in, in English words such as, as maniac or manic, as in manic depressive, right? This is a word that, that encapsulates the idea of, of Paul, you're, you're crazy, you're, you're insane, or to use more politically sensitive language, Paul, you have a psychiatric disorder. And that's, that's what Festus is saying here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, under inspiration, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And there is perhaps no more vivid illustration of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians than the passage before us here. Perhaps you have heard of a man named Borden of Yale. William Borden was born to a prominent and wealthy Chicago family. He, by the way, is not at all related to the Borden of Borden Milk, but was from a wealthy family. His family had made a great fortune in Colorado silver mining. But when William was just a young man, he chose to walk away from his elaborate lifestyle, from the fortune that he would have been taking on. His intention was to become a missionary to the Muslims in northwestern China. Unfortunately, while studying the language in March of 1913, he contracted cerebral meningitis and died within just a few weeks. He was only 25 years old. On his grave were inscribed these words, Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation of such a life. And so many looked and thought, what a waste. But that was not God's assessment. By the way, between the money that he had given in his lifetime and what was bequeathed upon his death, he left what would be in today's dollars over $21 million to the China Inland Mission. People will always look and say, serious service for Christ, that's a little off. A commitment to the message of Jesus, that's, that's a little crazy. I'm going to cite two different articles from the flagship publication, Psychology Today. One article says this, quote, Religious people are certifiable. They're obligated to believe and practice all sorts of crazy things. The author goes on to illustrate what he means by believe and practice crazy things by saying this, One older man I worked with 
took a vow as a teen that alcohol would never pass his lips. He also refused to have premarital sex. The horror of such a crazy idea. I cite another article also from the same publication. In moderation, religious and spiritual practices can be good for a person's life and mental well-being. But religious fundamentalism, now that's a charged term, right? What exactly does the author mean by religious fundamentalism? Well, it, the author's kind enough to define that for us. Which refers, catch this now, to the belief in the absolute authority of a religious text or leaders. This kind of belief, he says, is almost never good for an individual. This is primarily because it discourages any logical reason or scientific evidence that challenges Scripture, making it inherently maladaptive, which is a big fancy psycho-babble term for crazy. Dr. Daniel Berger, in his book, The Insanity of Madness, actually specifically addresses the passage before us this morning. Um, where the word mania is used, and he also talks about several other passages um, where the, this term mania is used. In all cases, the one being accused of being crazy or, or mad was in fact speaking the truth. It was those insisting that others were mad that were deceived. For example, in John 10, the Jews insisted that Jesus was either manic or demon-possessed. And these relate because deceit is at the core of what they're accusing him. And all of these cases show that, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, show that, that madness or, or mania is a label that suggests someone is deluded, they are deceived. And if secularists today do not like the truth of what is being stated, especially if it's from God's Word, they will be labeled as manic, maniac, crazy. And it is probably through this door of you know, mental health, mental hygiene, that a great deal of trouble will come to us as believers in the coming days. You know, to the world, being earnest about pleasure and wealth and athletics and academics, that all seems quite normal, but it's absurd if we wholeheartedly follow after Christ. Now, what is absurd is living merely for the here and now thinking that prestige or status will give us what we want. So Agrippa, confronted with the truth that Paul brings about, brings to bear, then gives this kind of um, red herring, is called in logic, this kind of avoiding the question, and he says, so quickly, w will you... Um, um, verse 28, then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost, if you're using the New King James, it says, almost persuade me to become a Christian. And perhaps you grew up singing that old 
gospel song, Almost Persuaded. But the Greek idiom doesn't mean almost. It, it literally means in a little. So it, it could mean either in a short time or with just a little bit of argument. It's kind of a sarcastic reference. Bain saying, Paul, you think you're going you're gonna to persuade me that easily to become a Christian? Now, this is interesting because in verse 25, the last part of the verse, Paul actually answers the charge that he's, that he's crazy. He's, in, he's saying, no, I speak what? The, the words of, watch this now, truth and reason. No, no, what I believe is actually quite reasonable. It is true. I appeal to the authority of Scripture. But it is also reasoned. He uses the truth of God's Word coupled with well-reasoned argument. And I just say it is important for us as believers to not succumb to the temptation that, that seems like it is pervasive right now in our discourse in the public square, to resort to logical fallacies, twisting of the facts, manipulative arguments. No, let's be be honest, be clear, be logical. But at the same time, be aware that this charge, this charge that you're, you're crazy, will probably be increasingly used to intimidate, to dismiss, and perhaps even to silence biblical Christians. Will we be stopped by this charge? I wonder, does this, does this temptation touch, on, touch you and me? Are we tempted to stop our Christian witnesses because, well, what will people think of me? What are they going to say? They're going to think I'm crazy. Be sensitive, yes. Be respectful, certainly. Be wise, no doubt. Be logical, absolutely. But above all, be bold, knowing that truth will be called mania, crazy, by a world that rejects him. And so the call for us this morning is to be committed to Christ, committed to Christ above all, recognizing that, that the, the good that we do, the work that we do is because of his gracious work. And so because of the work that he has done, we then should proclaim the truth the whole while knowing that truth will offend. The message of the cross will be seen as foolishness to those who reject. May we be reminded, as Paul reminds us, even in his apologetic for his life, that Christ is worthy of our full life's commitment. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the way in which it speaks to our hearts and lives. We thank you for the example of those that have been bold, who have gone before us. And even this morning, as we see this testimony of a life that was lived for you, for the cause of the gospel, may we be encouraged by it. Allow us, Lord, to respond even now as we see this testimony in our hearts.